So the Hungarian helmet is a Stahlhelm. It's it's basically the German M35, but it's painted green. It has a bracket on the back, and the rivets are different. So they think, they look at us, they're like, you don't look like Germans, but you have German helmets. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Reenactors Corner podcast. This is Chris here once again. Very excited today to bring on our special guest, uh, Shandor. Welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. So I've been looking forward to this for a little while because I've been listening for, I think, since the way beginning. Excellent. So for people who don't know you, why don't you give a little introduction of yourself and let us know how you got interested in World War II and how you got started with reenacting. Okay. So on Facebook, I'm Shandor. Um, that's like my Hungarian, Austro-Hungarian nom de guerre. Um, everyone that knows me, I'm Hunter in real life. Um, I started reenacting in 2015. Um, I'd been to like the Reading Air Show before that, and I didn't really know what reenacting was. I thought they were just people that were there as like part of the airplanes. And then um, one of the people I was friends with in high school, their dad reenacted. Um, so they were kind of involved and they were vehicle collectors. So I was at their house one day and then I walked in the barn and saw a whole motor pool of GI vehicles. And I thought, whoa, this is sweet. Uh, so you do like the Reading Air Show and stuff? Yeah. Oh, cool. I want to do that now. And then it cascaded from there. And now I'm here still doing it. That's really cool. So what kinds of reenactment have you done? What different impressions have you done in events since you got started? I started off doing GI because um, they did GI. And, you know, at the time, it was kind of the only thing that I was really interested in for World War II because it's, you know, because we're in America. So, it, you know, it's kind of like the big main sort of thing. And um, it was kind of like the way in. Like, I didn't, like, you know, compared to what I know now, I didn't really know that there was like other stuff you could do i thought it was mostly just like american german and then maybe like british or soviet um just what i'd seen at like reading so i started off as gi and then did my first reading air show in 2016 and then um i'd been to the gap that year just to buy stuff but not participate so in 2017 i did both uh, ford indian town gap events and then you know mired around with some other gi stuff and then i found out about newville and then I got into World War One, so then I got really into that, uh, doing Austro-Hungarian. And then from there, I sprung board back into World War Two, thinking, well, this is really sweet. You know, this is so different. You know, no one's doing this comparatively. You know, I wonder how I can, you know, kind of uh, transition some of this over to World War Two. So then I thought, well, you know, there's Austria, of course, but they were part of Germany. So it'd be kind of just be doing like a German kit which I wasn't, like, super interested in at the time. And then I thought, well, then there's Hungary. So then I went down the Hungary rabbit hole and found out that there was, in fact, people reenacting that, well, in Hungary in Europe. And then I got super invested into doing that. And it took a good just about three and a half years till I was ready with an impression at an event. That's really cool. Um, you mentioned, you know, our, our subject for today is going to really be t centering around uh, minor axis impressions, which are, um, it's sort of a niche thing within the niche hobby that is World War II reenacting. And I guess it makes sense that you kind of came to that through doing Austro-Hungarian for World War One. What was it about Austro-Hungarian that attracted you to it for your World War One impression over what most people do uh, where they do British or French or American or German and so on? I'll give the honest answer. is because Battlefield 1 had come out in 2016, and they had an Italian front map section where you played as Austria, Hungary, or Italy. And I'd only kind of knew a little bit about that, like surface level, like barely anything. And then I, you know, playing the game, started researching that some more and thought, wow, this is, you know, this is pretty cool. And then... Um, then I found out about Newville from some people talking about it at an event, and then I looked up on the GWA website what units there were, and then I saw they had French, and I thought, well, you know, I want to do French. So I contacted them, and then, you know, they gave me the price list of stuff and everything, and, you know, I looked through it. It was, a, it was like kind of like a, 
like a culture shock compared to GI stuff, especially back then, because up to this point, you know, I'd had at the front or I hate to say it, but man, the line actually had some good stuff on their eBay back then. And then original stuff, of course. So like buying that kit was just a matter of showing up to like the Reading Air Show or to like Fort Indian Town Gap. And then French was like a whole different direction. Like I didn't quite understand yet that you had to, you know, pay like a tailor and then wait some months. That, that was a new concept to me. Um, so I told them, you know, I'm just kind of shopping around. So then I saw there was Austro-Hungarian. And, um, and then our commander, Ralph, he, um, at the time I emailed him, he was in Slovenia for the 100th anniversary battle of Caporetto, which was one of the battles in the, in the video game. And he sent me the pictures after he got home and I was like, holy shit, this, this looks like a movie. Like it was actually on the Monte Grappa battlefield in, in present day Slovenia in the mountains in the Alps. And it was like a staged spectacle. So they had like a flamethrower and stuff. And right then and there, I just was like, yeah, no, I'm doing, I'm doing Austro-Hungarian. So I told the French, like, thanks for, you know, helping out, just showing me where to go, but I'm going to try Austro-Hungarian. And then I went from there and I am still doing it. And I have several Austro-Hungarian impressions. That's really cool. You're still doing World War One. Uh, new, you're doing like Newville Great War Association events as uh, Austro-Hungarian. So the next one's coming up for the April tactical in a few weeks. Um, we're looking at like a pretty good turnout. Um, I'm going to be taking a little bit of a leadership role this time. Um, just because someone has to go to like the commander meetings to get the information. So I'll be doing some of that stuff. Um, just kind of um, more. I'm not like going to tell people like, oh, you have to do this or that, but just kind of like give the general idea of what the um, you know scenario is going to be for the day. And then we can plan accordingly when it happens. Could you, I think probably a lot of people listening to this maybe aren't really too clear on exactly what the Austro-Hungarian Empire was. For people who don't know, can you just kind of briefly um, explain like what Austria-Hungary actually was? Okay, so I'll give the abridged version. Everyone, well, for the most part, knows, you know, World War One starts because the heir to the Austrian throne was assassinated by, um, when he was in uh, Sarajevo, and... So Austria-Hungary at the time was a dual monarchy. It encompassed the present-day regions of Austria-Hungary, Slovakia, the Czech Republic, parts of Poland, Romania, um, and the Balkans, northern Italy. It was a um, continuation from the Austrian Empire, but they became a dual monarchy in 1867 because um, political and um, you know social changes at um, you know brought on by some other wars and another series of political events but um it was a they were they were the um, the premier german state up to about 1866 competing with prussia and then prussia you know beats them in 1866 in uh, that war and they become kind of like i guess second fiddle in, in continental europe and then prussia becomes the german empire and confederates so they're kind of like a i guess you would say like a junior partner somewhat politically speaking um there's a lot of political issues with like nationalism and the monarchy because a lot of the, like the Czechs, Romanians and um and what would become Yugoslavia were they were itching for independence and there'd been some movements and uh, political issues up up to the beginning of the war with that and then the war situation changes everything temporarily but then as like the shortages go on the casualties mount up and um you know people aren't too terribly happy with how things are going it um, dissolves at the end of World War One, just actually just before um, like October, early November, like the Czech, what becomes Czechoslovakia breaks away, Hungary and Austria kind of like separate. Um, Yugoslavia is beginning to be formed as um, as all this is happening. There's a lot of political turmoil. The, the war doesn't really kind of end in, until like the 20s because there's so several like small border skirmish type of wars that happen immediately following. Um, so it's pretty. It becomes a powder keg, and then that you know leads into World War Two, and then the issues flare up again. That's a real lot of history to try to interpret, and I, I think it's really interesting that um, this this massive state that encompassed the areas now occupied by so many different uh, European nations. It was this one uh, giant dual monarchy empire thing. Um, 
How, I think it's kind of uh, interesting, an interesting thing to be interested in. How many people, roughly, do you think are, are doing like World War One Austro-Hungarian impressions in the United States f- for reenacting? I would say in the United States, probably between like our Newville guys and then some of the people on the West Coast that are doing it. And then just like the individuals and then um, some of the guys in Texas. So add everyone up, I'd say like comfortably like 25, maybe 30 tops overall so not it's not particularly popular here but um it's really big in the czech republic and in like the former austrian lands but they all have their own different versions of like reenacting in each of the different countries just based on like you know i would say like gun laws or like how culturally and and, like socially it's viewed um so like in the czech republic their reenacting is pretty similar to what we have here with like pitched public battles and you know shooting blanks and and then like public events um but then in like austria as far as i'm aware but with the exception of the one group there or the um, pioneer battalion eight it seems most of them are like kind of like older guys doing like commemorations kind of like reef laying and like parades and stuff and then in hungary it's kind of a mix of both of those types of reenacting and um and then in some other other former lands like poland they are also um pretty similar to how we reenact here with like private battles or like public displays or like unit hikes and, and that sort of thing as well. How similar is the uh, World War One German kit to what you need for Austro-Hungarian? Are there a lot of items that can be used for both impressions? Um, I would say, honestly, for what we're doing for Newville, when like they sort of, they become more similar looking, the only things you can actually use um, would be, I would say, the low boots, a German helmet, and then I would maybe like a German shirt. I mean, all the shirts are kind of the same than underwear. Uh, maybe some of the personal items, like the like the Jaeger pipes, um, some of like that smaller stuff. Otherwise, it's all different. How hard is it to um, get the kit for that impression? I wouldn't say it's easy, but there's pretty much everything's being reproduced now. Uh, there's a few things that aren't. They're either not being reproduced or they're in small batches. So like when they become available, you just kind of got to jump on them. Most of it's being made in the Czech Republic. And um, and then in Hungary as well, there's some vendors that I've connected with there. Um, but like generally speaking, like you can get yourself kitted out head to toe with like four different Czech vendors that all have their own specialty. Cool. What are the What are the World War One Newville events like? Um, you, you must You must enjoy them. You You keep going to them. Uh, how is that different from like World War Two reenacting? Um, I guess for like I know you've been to Fort Indian Town Gap. Some of the older listeners have been to Fort Indian Town Gap. Imagine, like, the fun of going there, looking forward to that, but it's in the trenches in central Pennsylvania instead of in an army base in central Pennsylvania. So, um, we have, like, I'm not going to lie, there, there's definitely some people there that aren't maybe on, like, the same level we are. Like, you know, they have a different idea of reenacting, which, you know, is cool and all. Well, like, for Austrian, we're more, like, um, progressive, I guess. We're, like, we're not going to beat someone up over, like, you know, not being, like, emaciated 18-year-old or, like, because you can't speak one of, like, the 11 different languages or something like that. But as long as you put forth a good effort and have, like, commitment and, you know, show up to the event and work towards getting your kit, you know, everyone gets along. And it's a really grand time. Um, one of our, you know, fun, one of the most fun things that, like, some of the other new guys have told me is, like, the nighttime wire-cutting parties at, like, 10 or 11 at night, um, sneaking up over the parapet, kind of low crawling or like crouch walking over to some of the allied barbed wire and then just cutting through all of it at nighttime when they're all you know not really keeping an eye out on that so then the next day when we have a planned assault they're kind of like oh crap we didn't realize what they cut through all of our barbed wire so we can just more easily stream through and do like trench raids so um there's a lot of a lot of different kinds of fun that you can have there it sounds really cool mm-hmm. you know uh World War II reenacting in general, I think, is a really niche hobby that not a lot of people do, like globally speaking. And then, of course, Axis is a niche within World War II reenacting that is itself smaller. And then minor Axis powers are like a sub-sub niche that is something that very few people are doing. Um, When you were looking at that, before you even got started... What kind of things were you thinking about in terms of how you were going to bring these kind of portrayals to events and uh, 
how difficult it was going to be to get the kit together, what kind of challenges you were going to face uh, versus the fun of it and what you wanted to do? Um, I would say, like, when I started it, the reality of reenacting was different. So this was, I would say, it was like the week before the last Fort Indian Town Gap event. So, like, you know, just about five years ago, I had the idea, um, I just had formulated Hungarian at that point. Because um, the thing with, like, a Hungarian is... Well, at the time, like, it's a little bit different. Um, some of the kit is identical to World War One because, um, well, basically, like, the country, like, actual Hungarian state shrunk by, um, I think, 73% of its territory was, was given away in the Treaty of Trianon. They didn't exactly have an industrial base or economy to, you know, upgrade many things, so... A lot of the field gear is, is basically identical or literally identical to World War One. Some of the weaponry, some of them, just a lot of the things are kind of the same. They, they would, you know, either like repaint them uh, with the, um, the, the like new gr green or khaki shades of paint and just, you know, this is the new model of, of whatever. And then in, in the 30s, they start upgrading uh, some of the kit with, with newer, more modern stuff, like aluminum versions of the mess kit and, and uh, like a new tornister and some other things. But, um... Like, my idea of reenacting at that point was, okay, this is going to be a kit where I'm hoping, you know, maybe by next next year at the next Ford Indian Town Gap, I'll be able to have me and maybe, like, one other guy, and we can, like, show up and hang around at the barracks and, you know, just show off, like, hey, look at this new thing we're doing, you know, if anyone's interested, you know, go to, like, the Reading Air Show and set up and some of, like, the local public events. Um, even then, like, I didn't have the illusion of, like, oh, yeah, now we're going to have, like, 20 dudes, you know, a whole platoon with, with a machine gun section and a communication section and, and a... And an officer's quarters, you know, I, I didn't have that idea ever, but, you know, the reality of reenacting changed a lot. You know, Fort Indian Town Gap, the, you know, the week after kind of went down the drain, as you're aware. Sure. Like, how do you think reenactment has changed um, since 2015? What, what do you really mean by that? So, like, I guess when I started, there was, there was more, there was consistent events. A lot of events I do now are, like, new, I would say, like, in the, the post-COVID era. Um, and then some of like the mainline events have, um, have disappeared like fig and some of the other local events here in, in Pennsylvania have disappeared, but then the other ones have come up to replace them. And then some other events have kind of been teetering on the brink because of like, you know, new state laws, like in New Jersey and in New York, especially with like gun laws there, um, that, that's caused some issues with events and, and attendance from people. Sure. But nevertheless, I guess, despite those increased challenges, you, you did decide to go ahead with it. Um, how how was it for you trying to find other people who might be interested in doing a World War II Hungarian impression? Um, I started off asking some of the some of the Nouveau guys because I figured if you know you're interested in Austro-Hungarian, you know maybe you'd be interested in World War II Hungarian. Um, as of right now, there's a few guys who have either they bought the kit or they're you know kind of working on a few things here and there. Um, it, it's a I'm not gonna lie, it's exceedingly difficult. You know, even for people in Hungary, like the most basic items of kit, like um. You know, it's compared to like German, because you know it's like kind of you know similar to like most European armies, with uh, like the field gear, the most basic items like a canteen set or a mess kit, we have to just keep our eye on eBay all the time. The Hungarian version of eBay, which is um, Vitera, um, German, Austrian eBay, just any country that like the Hungarian army operated in, we go on like their version of eBay to try to find stuff that was like left behind or you know people selling it and. Um, I kind of have like a little horde of stuff now. Like I have like six mess kits, seven or eight canteens, three, no, I have four rifles. Um, the only bottleneck right now is uniforms. We have a tailor in Hungary that does them, but um, we haven't been able to get anything more right now. So I'm, I'm going to try to work on that because um, we have some new guys who, who want to get some uniform stuff first because I have all the gear that I can loan to people. I just don't have spare uniforms. I've been looking recently at how much it would cost to get started today at reenacting World War II German. And I think probably including the rifle, realistically, unless you get great deals on used stuff, which is certainly possible, you're looking at, you know, something between one and two thousand um, dollars. That, that's my kind of experience and opinion about it. What about World War II Hungarian? How much how much does that cost to get everything that you need to reenact with? Um, I would say right now, when I started it, I would say, like, because I kind of pioneered it, that there was a few people doing it individually in, in the U.S. Um, 
before I got into it. However, you know, there were some different vendors like Shipper Fabric, um, Paul Shipper. He was making a few Hungarian things back in the day. So there was some stuff floating around beforehand. He actually made us, um, well, not just for us, but, you know, for everybody, the uh, the Hungarian version of the Zeltbahn, the, the Chatorlap. Um, it's pretty similar design. It's, it's not a triangle. It's like a... It's like it's like a cone sort of like if you put two of them together it looks like a cone, and then the camouflage pattern's different. He actually, um, you know, had one of his old makers. I think uh, he sent an original sample. They copied it. It was really good. Um, so we got we got those made. So I have a, a nice hoard of those as well. I don't have an original to compare it with because those are stupidly expensive and rare. Um, but just comparing it to like photos and from other people's, it's, it's pretty good. Um, overall kit, I would say full kit, full marching order right now, you're looking at about like four to $5,000. I spent like close to seven. Okay. Wow. So, so more expensive then. That's interesting. It's, uh, definitely got to be a, a sort of a serious labor of love for someone to undertake doing one of these impressions where, um, you know, it's more expensive, uh, it can be, I, I'm sure it can be a challenge sometimes to find the right kinds of events to do this stuff at. Um, but that must make it all the more rewarding, I've got to think, when you can complete putting an impression together and when you're able to field at events with other people who are doing the same thing. Because you're not you're not doing this by yourself. You're doing this now as part of a, a group that you sort of pioneered that does World War II Hungary. Yeah. Um, so my first unit member was... Um was Steven. He's one of the, he's local here in PA. He's uh, he's Hungarian. And um, so I was talking with like the guys that do like 1939 Polish. Cause like I connected with them, you know, just to get into events. Cause I'd already been like kind of, you know, buddies with them. And, you know, I started with, with that and springboard off of that. They told me, Oh yeah, we have a buddy who's Hungarian. Like, you know, you should ask him if he wants to do it. And I, you know, I found him I'm like, Hey, you want to like do this? He's like, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I'm down 100%. Just let me know where to buy the stuff. Okay, great. Here's the kit list that I made. Um, here's the prices. If you're still interested, you know, just send me a text message. So he's on board 100%. And then we got a few other guys. Once we started getting, once we got our stuff together, it was, it was 2021. So just like three and a half years of, um, just searching, trying to make the connections in Europe to get the stuff. And then about uh, actually two days before the Reading Air Show that year, it just like a giant box showed up from Europe from one of my connections in Hungary, uh, Christoph, because he'd been helping me out with getting stuff. And then I got the uniforms from uh, from our tailor in, in Vezprem. So I had these two giant boxes show up two days beforehand, and I was like ecstatic of like, whoa, we, we can actually do this. So we, I got everything together, let, let Stephen know, and then we showed up to Reading, and we had just about just about full marching order the boots weren't quite done so we just used what we had i'm like yeah we got this far let's just get out to the event and it was uh it was, it was a it was a smash hit with, with a lot of people because they'd never seen it before that's really cool you know i think it's really interesting how you like you went from uh being excited about a video game which is something that motivates a lot of people to get more interested in history and interested in reenacting and then to looking at doing uh you know World War One French reenacting, finding out that the kit aspect of it was going to be very challenging, starting to do World War One Austro-Hungarian reenacting, and then from there springboarding sort of into World War Two Hungarian reenacting, which is like maybe even more expensive and more difficult to obtain the stuff than uh, than the French thing that you didn't do in the first place, you know. But that's kind of just how reenactment works, I think, sometimes where. You know, you, what you might find out that you're passionate about something that's totally surprising or, or, or just different from what you kind of pictured when you first jumped into reenacting. Oh, yeah, it was, um, you know, the, the, the time it took to get the kit together, I, I kind of I'd started some other projects in the meantime with the there was a lot of downtime. Um, just with like vendor wait times or like, you know, thanks for contacting me. I'm, I'm booked up right now. I'm the one man show. I have an eight month wait. Um, I'll let you know when I can start and then you can pay me when there's something done, which is, which is a good aspect too. It's not a, you have to pay immediately up front with, with a lot of European vendors, um, which is good. But you know, if you, if you know, when the time comes and they ask for the money and you don't have it, then they're not going to be too satisfied. But you know, we kind of drill it in with people like, you know, for Austro-Hungarian too, it's the same deal. A lot of, sometimes the vendors are the same with the kit. Um, so it's not like you have to immediately spend all the money, but like things like the rifle, um, there's, there's two main rifles we use for, for Hungarian, the, the 31M short rifle, it's a Monlicker rifle, um, 
it's a it's a cut down M95 uh, Monlicker rifle because of the Treaty of Versailles. They couldn't have long rifles, so they they cut most of them down. And then in the 30s, they switched to the 8x56 cartridge, so they reconfigured them and then made some updates and then some new stamping and some other things. Those are probably the most common, and by most common, I mean, you know, you'll find one here and there, maybe like once a month if you're lucky. Um, I actually got one I have recently from uh, just like a random gun shop. I found it on arms list, I think. I called them up and it was like, they had one grainy picture of it, but I could tell, I think it was a 31M. So I called them up and I'm like, hey, so does it have the sight protector? Uh, yeah. Does it have the letters K-A-B stamped onto the stock with a little crown? Uh, yeah, it does. And I think the, the lady was kind of like puzzled because she, she wondered how I could know all this just based off of the one photo they had. But, you know, I'd been doing my homework. So, you know, I, I, I sent them the payment. They sent me the rifle and I was pleasantly surprised to find it had the, um, you know, everything I wanted on it, and it had the original sling, and uh, the original slings for those are, like, super-duper mega rare, so I have that, and then the 35M rifle, it's a newer model that they made in the 30s, it's a turning bolt action, but it uses the same end-block clips as the uh, previous Monlicker rifles, I got mine at a local gun show in 2020, it was about a thousand dollars, which was a good price, um, the, the one that I saw online that just sold, it was pretty much the identical condition and everything it sold for just under five thousand dollars so um it can be very uh very wild trying to get get a hold of those yeah that's wild all right now you you have other impressions too right you do uh other nationalities now i was trying to get into civil war but it just was too much of a commitment just with all the other stuff i have so i kind of shelved that and sold some things um my oldest quote-unquote kid i'm working on is 1866 austrian army um, I just kind of got into that recently. I actually just got the Shaco today in the mail. Um, and then I got some of the leather gear from, from, that all comes out of the Czech Republic too. They make just, just about everything there, most, most eras, surprisingly. And then from there is Austro-Hungarian. I have early war kit, mid-war kit, late war kit. And then I do World War II Japanese. So I have army and navy stuff for that. And then I have Russo-Japanese war Japanese kit as well. And then, uh, World War One Russian and... World War One Bulgarian just finished that one up. I got to get some kit photos with that one. Um, World War Two Hungarian and one more. And then I do some like like Polish Bolshevik War stuff on the side because a lot of the kit is um this is like a mix of World War One stuff. And then I, I still have a GI kit. I just haven't done it in a really long time. And then I did World War Two German once, but I'm going to be selling a lot of some of that stuff just to keep funding Hungarian stuff. Try to focus some more on that. It's a really staggering range of uh, impressions that you're doing there. I can only envision how how big your mounds of gear must be uh, to do all of those different uh, armies and impressions. I'm at the point where I forgot I owned some stuff until I dug through the pile and was pleasantly surprised to find some of it. Yeah. That's that's absolutely wild. Uh, what what kind of events do you do with these different impressions? I mean, I think um, most of our listeners probably uh, won't be surprised to hear that, like most World War II events, kind of typically and traditionally over the years have been uh, Western Front post D Day. Um, and kind of most reenactors and reenactment units are geared towards those kind of scenarios. You're, of course, doing something that's um, very different from that. So what, what are the options for you and your crew to actually get out there and do stuff? Um, so right now, just public events. Um, we kind of figured, especially after like the gap had died down, um, that we weren't really going to be involved with any battles till we could get like more uh, like, a, like a core membership like east coast because right now everyone's kind of spread out so there's like the, we have the east coast guys then the midwest guys and then the texas crew um so we're trying to make like the reading air show kind of like our big main effort event for the year um just because it's a really big event so you know there's a good draw there with, with all the cool stuff that you can see um we're almost close to maybe getting out to a tactical potentially maybe maybe later this year but you know hopefully next year um there's like a new Hazleton PA site they're working on. I think they have an event there coming up soon. So I was talking with the with one of the one of the guys running it, and he said he was open to it. So I just kind of um, try to pursue that some more, and then get um, try to get involved with that, and then we can try to get out because we have um, more with our group. We have a Schwarzlose machine gun that um, was working on being converted to like a propane gun, which 
you know, a lot of people think those are hokey, but, you know, the reality is there's not many of them, and uh, there's not many that are, you know, full auto. We can't really afford that, so we're just trying to work with what we have as far as, you know, stuff like that. I think the concept of working with what you have is so valuable, you know, and obviously we all wish that we could be fielding, you know, uh, fully automatic crew-served weapons and all of the equipment and, you know, that would be required for an army to do battle. But the reality is, is that there are aspects of, uh, there are aspects of cost and there are aspects of availability that really need to be taken into account. Yeah. That's, um, like one of the issues with Newville, um, that, that's kind of like pertinent with like real world events. Like I was saying with like laws and stuff because of the whole, um, you know, war in Europe right now, uh, pretty partisan, the company that makes the blank ammo has shifted production entirely to that conflict. Um, there's one vendor left that has the uh, the 303 British blanks, uh, the Western Stage Props Company. They're um they're they're about two dollars and thirty cents a round. So we were renting a Lewis machine gun because uh, the Austrians used those on the Western Front when they were there. Um, the little anecdote: they brought their Schwarzlose machine guns, but the the quartermaster suppliers kind of omitted the uh, machine gun belt, so they were inoperable. The Germans supplied them with captured British Lewis guns. Um, there's a photo of it somewhere. I gotta dig it up to try to find that, but they were they, they used them. So we were renting one the past few events, and it, it's like, you know, you cannot beat a real machine gun. It's fun, but, you know, $2.30 a shot, it's, um, you know, no one can afford that, so we kind of have to put a pause on that so we can get something figured out. And that, that's going to affect a lot of people. Um, the The availability of blanks is something that a lot of reenactors over the years have kind of taken for granted that there would always be people and companies producing blank ammunition that we could use for tacticals but now we're starting to see not just with with one caliber but in many different segments of the reenacting hobby there's um, skyrocketing prices or limited availability of blanks so it's going to really be interesting to see how people uh, adapt to that going forward yeah um we're kind of shifting now with, with just kind of that reality like you know this war is not ending anytime soon and even, even if it ended tomorrow like there's still going to be a long time till the blank production's back up and then exported and then you know you know disseminated to, to vendors and whatnot um so we're kind of moving maybe towards like more like maybe like private events but like sort of living history sort of maybe like patrols you know, i guess kind of like what, what you do with like the sickerungs type of thing like you know set up like a you know like a command post sort of thing and or like a machine gun nest and just kind of sit there and you know send out a patrol or just kind of like dig stuff and you know read stuff and and do like some drills and and work on that sort of thing um because it it doesn't cost any money i mean it does cost money but you know you're not thinking like every time you shoot the gun that it's going to be like an hour's pay just dumping out a five round clip you know what i mean so we're kind of figuring out where we're going to go forward with that yeah the event style that you describe of the immersion event type thing to me that is um i mean i kind of wear my heart on my sleeve about this it is my favorite style of reenacting but it's not just because i i happen to enjoy it i do also think that it is probably long term the only real sustainable way that we're going to be able to keep reenacting World War II. I mean, there are going to be public displays and tacticals for the the foreseeable future, I'm sure. But, um, you know, there's so many different factors coming into play where for me, uh, I know that there will, it will always be possible for me and my friends to go and set up a Zeltbahn tent in the woods and live the life out there for a weekend, eat the food, try to immerse ourselves into the time period, the culture, use our gear and so on. And so I think that's a really good, um, sort of model to try to move towards basically for everybody in this hobby that's that's my opinion yeah i think um it's kind of like like a like a sort of it's like a running joke sort of with some people like the less people that know about reenacting the better because if you pulled like the average person off the street and explained it in like like the worst way possible like oh you know we have a hobby where we go out and we like pretend to dress up as world war ii soldiers and shoot guns at each other you know the average person is going to be shocked like though you know i can't believe that you know you're allowed to do that you know, we, we need to put a stop to that. So I think it's better that, you know, a lot of people that don't know about it because the people that like do know about it, you know, they don't have that that mindset, you know, so it's probably better that way, but less people knowing about it overall. But, and then on the flip side of that, you know, we do want more people to get involved. You know, it's like a lot of older guys, you know, quit reenacting, especially like with, with COVID. I know a lot of people that kind of like hung up, 
you know, their coat for the last time. Like, you know, I'm too old for this now. And, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, events and changes that happened and, you know, it's time to let the new guys take over, that sort of thing. So we just want, we just want the, you know, the good people to get involved. When you do public display events, what kind of reaction do you guys get from the public? Do they, uh, you know, what do you encounter people who know what they're looking at? Uh, do people think it's cool? Are people baffled by it? Or, or what kind of reactions do you get? Um, typically people, because like the, the Hungarian helmet is a Stahlhelm. It's, it's basically the German M35, but it's painted green. It has a bracket on the back and the rivets are different. So they think, they look at us, they're like, you don't look like Germans, but you have German helmets. So what, what, what are you guys? So so we're the Hungarian army, you know, but let me give our spiel. And then we have the, the Hungarian royal flag set up. So it's pretty mm, innocuous, I guess, because, you know, it doesn't have like the, you know, the, like the hammer and sickle or, you know, like a swastika, like where people would obviously automatically know like, okay, those are Germans, those are those are Soviets, uh, or, you know, American or British. So they, they don't quite understand what it is. And then they're intrigued. Uh, some people even like the Reading Air Show because they saw our like our weird camouflage pattern. They came over and were like, "Well, you know, we were walking by and we saw this weird camo pattern, and we, we had to check out and see what you guys were, were doing." And then, um, then they come in. We have a pretty good display. Um, right now, it's kind of like a blanket ground display. We, we need to get some tables, so we have like a really good selection of like personal kit, documents, like reproduction paperwork, sometimes uh, some original medals, like a map of Hungary. And uh, that shows the borders in 1940 and the political you know, situation and, uh, you know, some, some photographs and um, and money and and cigarettes and all, all and grenades and some other stuff. Um, and people are usually intrigued by that sort of thing, and especially the rifles, because there's always people at events who like, oh, you know, let me see that Mauser kid or, oh, let me see that Arasaka kid. But then they look at ours and they're like, uh, you know, what, what is that? Now oh, it's a Hungarian 35M. Uh, I've never seen that before. Okay, so here's how it operates, blah, blah, blah. Um, so we get a lot of that, and then a lot of other reenactors are like amazed by it. You know, they're always coming up like, "Wow, I've never saw this before. You guys look great." You know, some people do want to get involved, and then I, you know, this honestly tell them, you know, if you want to do it, it's cool, but this is what it costs, and there's a lot of wait times involved. If you want to proceed, you know, just you know, contact me. So that's kind of been like the barrier to entry. Unfortunately, we can't do a whole lot about that um, as far as getting like reproductions made for some things like, you know, canteens, mess kits, and and metal stuff. Just the, the the setup cost and, and the headache involved, you know, and how many people are going to buy it, you know, so it's kind of like a searching game with that sort of thing. Do you have to use all original canteens and mess kits? I, I would say technically you don't. There's actually plastic reproductions in Hungary, but they look different. Like, they're green. The mess kits just bare aluminum. You know, if, if someone was able to buy one, I'm not going to, like, shun them over it. Um, like, I, I do have a lot of loaner gear that I can provide, and then we're not we're not really beating the stuff up at public events, so I don't mind, like, you know, put this bread bag on your kit and wear it around, because um, they wore the bread, the uh, mess kit on the bread bag strapped onto the outside. Um, like, in a tactical situation where we get banged around, we're trying to figure that part out, maybe secure some, like, lesser collectible examples just to exclusively use for that purpose. You mentioned having the flag at, at public events. I think that that's a really... Uh, cool and reasonable way to kind of visually assert you know this is what we are it, it can be kind of controversial in reenacting in general i think because um the reality is for most of these guys their armies in the field their small encampments of soldiers at their outposts they weren't really flying flags but um I think it's cool at a public display where it's like, you know, it serves basically as a sign that says, uh, you know, this is this is who we are. This is us. You know, it's if you recognize the flag, you know what we are. If you don't recognize the flag, you know that you're looking at something that you haven't really encountered before. So I think that's um, really practical. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like we have some stuff like just like the reality of a public event, especially like the Reading Air Show. You're out there for three whole days. There's no shade there's no trees it's over 100 degrees on the tarmac so you know we got to set up like you know you know if there's only a few of us we're going to put up a fly tent we, we do have a fly tent that is the hungarian camo pattern they were real issued um pieces but you know for like um you know not for like four guys it, you know just the reality dictates like we're not gonna you know have some guys come like across the country and then you know get sunburn and dehydrate so you know we have stuff like that set up you know, just kind of like, that's the reality with like public events, um, private events. We haven't really dove, I guess the closest we got was the Fort Mifflin so far. Um, but that's like a barrack setting. Um, 
so we're, you know, with that, we can set up like a small area um, in one of the buildings and just make it something. So we're going to work on that going forward in the next time, maybe going to like a, a little barracks display because we do have um, some of that stuff that we can set up. That's cool. Uh, we, we talked about the reactions that you guys get from the public. What about the reactions that you've gotten from other reenactors, both at events and behind the scenes? Are people mostly supportive or are they just baffled and indifferent or are you guys um, getting any blowback for doing something different from what most people do? It seems uh, right now it's just continuous growth or like we'll go do something. We'll get some good kit pics of like, you know, the event and then like our impressions and just post them. And we get a lot of really good reaction. I'd say the worst reaction is just kind of like, you know, stupid like public comments on Facebook of like, you know, I don't know, something dumb like, oh, you know, soldiers didn't put their hands in their pocket or, you know, something dumb like that. Um, we haven't had anything bad. I think because we're like this middle ground between like, you know, we're, we're on the Axis side, but we're not the Germans. You know, so people don't associate like Hungary with, with like all the, you know, like German stuff. But then we're not on the Allied side. So we're not, we can't be like you know praised or anything, but it's like a like a neutral middle ground sort of for like reaction wise. Um, but we get, we do get a lot of good support from other reenactors, uh, typically. That's great. When we look at different impressions that people do, um, you know, I've I've done Soviet World War II and German World War II, and there are differences there in the availability of information and kind of the infrastructure that comes along with years of reenactors having already figured out a lot of the basic stuff. And I'm not just talking here about like the kit stuff. So for example, with regard to World War II German, there's a tremendous amount of information that's been translated and made available on everything from the recipes for the dishes that they were served in the field kitchen to the squad tactics and the uh, rules regarding saluting for individual soldiers and so on and so forth. I've got to think that for Hungarian, you know, beyond the problem of obtaining the kit, the sort of historical, cultural, both both military and just sort of general Hungarian cultural stuff must be kind of a challenge for you to navigate. How have you found it trying to do research on, on those kind of things? Um, so I was going to bring that up too. Uh, you know, like you said for German, you know, I think I even asked one time because I was looking up something like, hey, do you know what the you know National Archive reference role is for this information? Oh, yeah, here it is. Okay, great. Hungarian is, it doesn't exist. They, the country was basically destroyed during World War II, and it was, you know, the Battle of Budapest, a lot of stuff was destroyed, records and documents and stuff immediately after. Um, there's a democratic government, then a communist government, and they don't like the, the fascist Horthy government, so the, a lot of that stuff's got to go. And um, it, it isn't really until, like, recent decades that information's begun to resurface. Uh, you know, most, pretty much, almost everything's in Hungarian language, so it's kind of difficult to read. Uh, for for most of us, so uh, we have that I, I managed to get on eBay. It's a like um it's it's like an officer's handbook. It's about uh, like it's like eight hundred pages. I think it's a pretty extensive book. It shows how to um you know what the kit is and and, just, and, just, and describes that like the rifles, the guns, and you know like horse equipment and how cavalry should function, how to dig trenches, how to plan artillery fire, how to set up a machine gun position. Uh, it gives all the, the basic ranks information shows like the collar tabs the shoulder boards that sort of thing uh, different colors for the different branches we have a reference book as well for that it's uh, from one of the Hungarian museums where they have original uniforms and mannequ well, the mannequins are real people that are modeling the stuff so they have all the different branches like the uh, army the the river guard which is, which is like their small navy for the Danube uh, River the air force the cavalry artillery supply troops um, officers and all the officer stuff, the, the Royal Guard, because they were technically still a kingdom, were led by an admiral because the king was in exile and he actually wasn't allowed back into Hungary and then died. So it was Horthy who was the regent. Um, it's kind of a learning experience every day. We're like, all right, let's go through this section. Let's try to get this translated. And then let's consult with the people in Hungary that are doing this and see, you know, uh, you know, we're doing this right. Um, some of those guys, they have like some instructional videos for like drills and stuff. Um, so it's, it's a learning experience every day with, with regards to that sort of thing. You know, we talk sometimes in reenactment about like representation, uh, 
and this is kind of a weird sort of oftentimes kind of online argument where there's not enough people doing one thing, there's too many people doing another thing. Something is, you know, overrepresented in reenacting, something is underrepresented in reenacting. And uh, of course, you guys are doing something that has been presented by like very very few people i'm thinking back on it like my first my first experience with anybody reenacting hungarian was probably um maybe i don't know 15 years ago now and it was this one guy whose family was from hungary and he really really wanted to do uh world war ii hungarian reenacting but he had nobody to reenact it with and he was trying to like sort of find ways where um he found some documentation about Hungarian soldiers that were attached to German units, maybe even on the Western Front in some way, and and so on and so forth. Um, you know, I, I think it's, uh, I just think it's really cool that you're able to kind of get a unit together where you've got multiple people at an event um, kind of on your own terms, you know, just saying, look, we are the Hungarian army, and this is our gear, and this is how it was, and... Uh, you know, kind of, I guess, from a philosophical standpoint, you know, what's your sort of take on this, like, representation idea? Do you think, in your mind, would it be great to have uh, public displays where every combatant army of World War II is is represented by a reenactor? Um, oh, yeah, we're, we're working on that now. Um, I think we're at the point with, uh, with, you know, history and reenacting where people... Even the public, you know, they the like we, we we get good reaction because people they like they've been to like say the Reading Air Show multiple times. Like we have people that they said I've been coming here just about every year since the '90s, and we've never seen anything like this before. And it'd be great, you know, to see you guys again, and you know some other I guess I'll say weird, but you know just not represented like Bulgarian. That there's a group of guys doing Bulgarian World War II now. I think we're gonna try to connect with them at the Reading Air Show. And just kind of make like a joint uh, like minor axis display, and then uh, one of our other guys he does Croatian stuff, um, so we, we do that a little bit as well. So we're gonna try to get you know like some more representation, kind of like a big minor axis thing going on, um, or like you know axis allies and and that sort of thing. Uh, I think it's long overdue because um, you know it's 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 able to be done you know with enough effort. So if people can do it, I think that they should you know make the make the attempt at least. Tell us about the the unit that you portray and and how you picked it. So we portray the Royal Hungarian Ninth Light Division, uh, the Seventeenth Regiment of the division, and uh, we picked it simply because when I was researching online, trying to like, make a specific portrayal, not just kind of a general thing. It was the only regiment and unit that I could find where they actually had a, a book about their their time on the Eastern Front uh, at the at the Dawn Front in 1942 and 43. And it was um, it was full of pictures. Uh, had all the officers of the regiment, pictures of all the enlisted men from the time that they departed Hungary to present day Ukraine, marching from there to the Don Front uh, to fill in the positions that the Germans kind of you know reserved for them in, in the Axis Allies, and then their time engaging the Soviet Army, the huge setbacks involved with their with their forces mismatched. Because even by then, the you know even a weakened Soviet. Uh, unit would be more powerful on, on paper than, than a Hungarian one and in practicality they had much more artillery, machine guns, aircraft, and of course more men and more modern stuff to boot. Um, so there's a lot of the challenges presented with that. The supply difficulties, they were still a very um, rural based country. You know they had trucks and stuff of course but most everything was horse transport and they had to transport it across very large distances so there's a lot of shortages with things and um, you know they just didn't never had enough men that they needed to cover the whole uh, section of the front line. And, uh, you know, it was brought up with the Germans. They, you know, promised support. They, they never really delivered a whole lot. And then the winter sets in, and this is where basically the entire Hungarian Second Army is destroyed, um, you know, during, like, the Battle of Stalingrad. They're not in the city, but they're on the outskirts protecting the, the flank of the German army. And uh, the Soviets basically just completely rolled over them. And they, they couldn't do anything about it. It was two days of fighting, and they had to just they just broke in retreat. There was no way to fight. You know, like sub forty Celsius temperatures, uh, minimal winter gear. Like they had winter gear, but it was for you know climates like in Hungary. They didn't have you know fur-lined parkas and parka sets and you know all that stuff that like the Germans would have had later on. You know, they were freezing to death. All the horses died. They just burned up their supplies on the way. You know, you know if we can't have it, then you know we're not letting this get captured. Just dropping everything behind. 
a really disheveled retreat back to, towards Hungary, where they're then welcomed back as heroes. You know, they did their part, and uh, you know, by 1943, Horthy realized how um, you know how futile this was, and um, you know, there was no, there was very minimal operations from that point. Uh, the, the the Ninth Light Division was was pretty much all but destroyed and, and reincorporated into some other formations. And uh, then the, by the time that their combat strength was, was kind of up to par again, this when the Soviets invaded. Um, and then it's, it's kind of taken over by the Hungarian Third Army because they were kept in reserve to protect against Romania, who they were t- you know, allies on paper, but in practicality they both hated each other. Uh, the Germans were trying to you know, keep them from fighting each other, but um, you know, they never committed their full strength to fighting against the Soviet Union and, and such things. So um, you know, by this point, they're uh, just kind of defending their homeland. Uh, from the invasion forces. We'd take out some of our pictures from our events and we'd be sharing them with the veterans and you know they would say uh, oh I, I don't remember who this was or I, and then we would say oh no no like th- that's us. A public show battle is a scripted battle where the um, Americans always win it is the worst thing imaginable when you're in the so I, I always bring spare kit along, and if, if somebody wanted to try, you know, joining the unit for the weekend and, and, and see what it's like, I, I, they would be more than welcome. We, we've always got the kit for that. The Reenactors Corner, bringing history to life. Uh, Shandor, it's been really great having you on the program. I've uh, really enjoyed hearing you talk about kind of your pretty unique uh, World War II impression project. Thanks for having me. If somebody was interested in getting started with World War II Hungarian reenacting, how could they get in touch with you and find out more about your group? So on Facebook, we're the Royal Hungarian Ninth Light Division. Um, you can just message the page, message me directly. I'm on, on Facebook as a, as a Vada Shendor. Um, either one's fine. Cool. All right. So to Shandor and to everybody else out there, uh, stay safe, keep reenacting, and I will see you in the field. We love hearing your thoughts on the podcast, so why not sign up to the Reenactors Corner on Discord? You'll find a link in the show notes that accompany this episode. And while you're there, perhaps have a think about supporting us via Patreon. Your regular donations, no matter how big or small, really count and help keep us on the air. Thanks to Mike, aka Retroman, for editing the podcast. And we hope that you'll join us here again soon for the next episode of the Reenactors Corner.